Welcome to the Did Nothing Wrong podcast, where we try to cut through the noise and help you make sense of the chaotic information space around us. I'm Griff Somke. And I'm Jay McKenzie. Donald Trump held a campaign rally Saturday night in Waco, Texas, the site of which seems to have been chosen specifically to bring back memories of the 1993 standoff between the Branch Davidian religious sect and the federal government, which ended with the deaths of 86 people. Trump has been stoking anti-government hatred for several years now and is currently under investigation and facing potential charges in several jurisdictions. We will break down the history and the extremely disturbing parallels between what happened 30 years ago in Waco and what happened last weekend. If you like what you're hearing, please give us a rating and a review on the app that you're listening on. Be sure to subscribe at didnothingwrongpod.com to get our content straight into your inbox. All of our work is free, but we're extremely grateful for paid subscriptions and donations that ensure that we can keep doing this important work. Thank you. So let's talk about the significance of Waco to the anti-government movement in the United States. The Branch Davidians were a breakaway group of Seventh-day Adventists who believed that they were living in the end times prophesied in the biblical book of Revelation. Their leader was a man named Vernon Howell, who later began calling himself David Koresh. His first name, David, symbolized a lineage directly to the biblical King David, from whom the new Messiah would descend. Koresh is the biblical name of Cyrus the Great, a Persian king who is named a Messiah for freeing Jews during the Babylonian captivity. By taking the name of David Koresh, he was professing himself to be the spiritual descendant of King David, a messianic figure carrying out a divinely commissioned errand. On February 28, 1993, the ATF attempted to serve an arrest and search warrant on the Branch Davidian compound in Waco, Texas, due to allegations of child abuse and weapons stockpiling. This led to a shootout in which four ATF agents died and 20 more were wounded, as well as an unknown number of members of the Branch Davidian group. The ensuing siege lasted 51 days and ended with the compound catching fire and killing the remaining 79 members of the group, including David Koresh. This incident, as well as the standoff in Ruby Ridge, Idaho a year earlier, galvanized the anti-government movement in the United States. Militia groups sprung up seemingly everywhere. Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols cited the Waco siege as their motivation for the Oklahoma City bombing of the Murrah Federal Building on April 19, 1995, which was timed to coincide with the second anniversary of the Waco assault. As Sarah Pruitt wrote for History.com, During his adolescence in upstate New York, Timothy McVeigh developed an enthusiasm for guns and a suspicion of governmental authority. He drew inspiration from the 1978 novel The Turner Diaries, written by the white nationalist William Luther Pierce, which depicts a right-wing insurrection against a tyrannical federal government seeking to deprive citizens of their right to bear arms. But this is only the beginning of McVeigh's anti-government stance. As a soldier in the U.S. Army, McVeigh won a medal for bravery in the Persian Gulf War, but after his discharge in 1991, he began frequenting gun shows and developed even stronger suspicions of the U.S. government. Then came the notorious Ruby Ridge standoff of August 1992, when U.S. Marshals attempted to apprehend a man named Randy Weaver at his family's remote hillside cabin in northern Idaho. Weaver, who had resisted efforts by the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, the ATF, to force him to inform on the white supremacist group Aryan Nations, 
hadn't shown up for his trial on weapons charges. An initial exchange of fire left Weaver's 14-year-old son and a U.S. Marshal dead. Federal authorities then laid siege to Weaver's cabin for 11 days, during which an FBI sniper wounded Weaver and family friend Kevin Harris and killed Weaver's wife, Vicki. McVeigh viewed Ruby Ridge as clear evidence that the U.S. government aimed to disarm the public and take away people's Second Amendment rights. McVeigh reacted even more strongly to federal authorities' handling of a 51-day standoff with members of the Branch Davidian religious sect near Waco, Texas. Like Ruby Ridge, the Waco siege began with an ATF raid. It ended in a fire that killed around 75 members of the Millennial sect in April 1993. McVeigh was far from alone in his outrage. Ruby Ridge and the events at Waco fueled anger within the fledgling American militia movement and other far-right groups at what they saw was an oppressive government determined to attack and suppress anyone who, like Weaver of the Davidians, refused to conform to its will. On April 19, 1995, exactly two years after the fiery conclusion of the botched Waco siege, McVeigh detonated explosives planted in a truck outside the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City. He plotted the attack with two fellow Army veterans who shared his anti-government views, Terry Nichols and Michael Fortier. The building housed offices for the Social Security Administration, the Drug Enforcement Administration, DEA, the Secret Service, and the ATF, among other organizations. It also housed a Veterans Counseling Center, a military recruitment office, and a daycare center. The Oklahoma City bombing killed 168 people, including 19 children, and wounded hundreds more in the worst terrorist attack in U.S. history to that date. Before he was executed in 2001, McVeigh made it clear that he intended the bombing as retribution for the deaths at Waco and Ruby Ridge, and had deliberately planned the bombing to take place on the second anniversary of the Waco disaster. And not mentioned in that article is the fact that McVeigh traveled to Waco during the siege and handed out anti-government bumper stickers. Here's Timothy McVeigh in his own words from PBS's American Experience. Just, uh, just arrived today. I guess uh, somebody told me a lot of people are, would be scared to put something on you know, like this. Timothy McVeigh had already apparently been very concerned about what had happened at Ruby Ridge. So he came down to Waco and sold bumper stickers with pro-gun, anti-government slogans. He saw the raid as clear evidence of what the government would do to try to confiscate guns and persecute gun owners. And here we are, 30 years later, and Donald Trump is having a rally in Waco on the anniversary. And let me read a little bit of Will Carlos's reporting for USA Today on the significance of this location. He writes, former President Donald Trump launching his bid to return to the White House, even as he rallies supporters to protest against an arrest he claims is impending, chose an auspicious location for one of his earliest rallies for the 2024 election, the city of Waco, Texas. The rally planned for Saturday will fall during the 30th anniversary of the siege of the Branch Davidian compound in Waco. Federal agents aiming to arrest cult leader David Koresh surrounded his walled compound in an armed standoff that lasted more than a month. It ended in a botched raid that left 76 people, including 25 children, dead. The rally also comes as Trump reportedly faces criminal charges in New York. He has claimed several times in the last week that he will be arrested imminently. 
but the former president remained free on Friday afternoon. Trump has portrayed the charges as a witch hunt carried out by sinister forces in the federal government, a theme that has been an increasingly common refrain for Trump as his rhetoric has swung further to the far right since losing the 2020 election. Again, in the same article, Carlos quotes Heidi Birich, co-founder of the Global Project Against Hate and Extremism, as saying this, Waco is hugely symbolic on the far right. There's not really another place in the U.S. that you could pick that would tap into these deep veins of anti-government hatred, Christian nationalist skepticism of the government, and I find it hard to believe that Trump doesn't know that Waco represents all of these things. Yeah, Donald Trump has railed against the FBI and the deep state being out to get him for years now, and thus the significance of holding a rally in the place where the modern American anti-government movement really, quote, found its voice, so to speak, is pretty hard to deny. But he did deny it. The Trump campaign stated that the reason Waco was picked was because of its central location and not due to anything else. I don't know, Griff. Do you believe that? You know, I don't know, but let's listen to some of what he said at the rally. The district attorney of New York, under the auspices and direction of the Department of Injustice in Washington, D.C., was investigating me for something that is not a crime, not a misdemeanor, not an affair. We got crazy people like Schiff, Shifty Schiff, and Hillary, and all of these people. These people, they don't want to talk about greatness for our country. All they want to do is investigate everybody, but they are the ones that are really under investigation. But we have some great congressmen that probably they wouldn't go after because they're too clean. They're the cleanest people I've ever met. They come from Texas. The Supreme Court didn't have the courage to right the wrong of the 2020 election. They knew what was going on. But this is really prosecutorial misconduct. That's what it's called. The innocence of people makes no difference whatsoever to these radical left maniacs. It is worse, actually, in my opinion, hard to believe anything could be worse than this, but I think it's worse than ballot stuffing or media manipulation by the FBI working together with Twitter, Facebook, and the rest. Um, I'm going to say no. To me, that's a man who knows exactly what he's doing. But you can't prove it. No, no. <laughs> right, I can't. Hard to know what's going through Pro- the man's head, but... Prove that negative. Wow, prove that looks bad. that negative. Yeah, there, there are enough layers of deniability that Trump can claim he knew nothing. And... Of course, there are members of the media who will eat that narrative up, but he's good at this. The Mueller investigation, his comments after Charlottesville, everything to do with QAnon, January 6th. The reason Trump hasn't really gone down for any of this is there's always that degree of deniability and uncertainty. (laughs) Donald Trump is best at covering Donald Trump's ass, essentially. Yeah, and there are decades of proof long before he got into politics. <laughs> no kidding. I mean, and this is a guy who's always been really good at coming up with alternative explanations, shall we say, for why <laughs> things are not what they seem with him. Everybody in America bought into the idea that this guy was a billionaire when he was running except the people who'd actually been reporting on him for a number of years who found themselves being like extremely skeptical about this whole thing. The, the whole thing behind the apprentice was basically a sideshow. The idea that this guy 
needed to figure out a way to keep this contract from being canceled. They pitched a reality show with Donald Trump. And next thing you know, it's this big deal. He's a media star again. But the man's gone broke and been back on his feet more times than I can even count. Well, and he he has, well, I would say more failed projects than he has successful ones, but it's it's hard to, it's hard to remember what the successes are. The success of, of claiming victory in the face of defeat is certainly out there. And mm-hmm. how many different Trump-branded hotels did people assume? Well, of course he owns it. It's, it's the Trump. It's called the Trump. And then you look into this hotel in Canada and all of these places around the world. And yeah, his name's on it, but... In some cases, he doesn't own any of it. He's essentially. He's licensing the name. He's a franchise. He's licensing the name to franchisees. That's all this is. Yeah. Uh, And he's he's good at it. Uh, But he's definitely even even if you don't start getting into like Trump stakes and the airline Trump University. Trump University and then the, the USFL. The Oh, yes. The USFL. He had the New Jersey generals of the USFL back in the day. Yeah, not only did the the team collapse, the entire league stopped existing. So <laughs> Trump Taj Mahal uh, no longer exists. They blew that up a couple years ago, didn't they? Mm-hmm. They did. They did. They did. Yeah. Yeah. So he's he's good at uh, claiming to be a success and people bought it. And The Apprentice uh, essentially cemented that idea. But yeah, Trump is is great at or at least the people around him are great at signaling their support for things that they're they can say oh he doesn't know anything about it they don't he trump doesn't know anything about QAnon, and ivanka is just tweeting about all the things in the lead up to the 2020 election i remember ivanka tweeting about the government is doing this to to support anti-human trafficking efforts and oh Mm. we've caught (laughs) this many people at the border and we've disrupted this many organizations and then they don't say anything else and no one can prove that she's doing that or that any of the media figures out there saying look at all the all the things that donald trump has done to root out human trafficking but it's a central feature of QAnon. so of course the audience is going to know what he's saying or they're saying without saying it right it's all salesmanship This is just him pushing buttons, and we'll see this again. It's a recurring theme with this guy that he's figured out what buttons to push to make people think he's actually doing things, when in reality he's either not doing any of those things or he's doing something completely different. But the man is really, really good at figuring out how to get you to look at certain things and remember certain other things that you've been, you know, sold at this point. He's amazing. Yeah. It's really something. It's it's a it's a skill. It's uh not good for the country, but good for Donald Trump, right? Sure is. To paraphrase a <laughs> media executive there. So do you think that what he's doing here is just a big strategy to get out of all of these various legal problems he finds himself in at this point? I wonder how much of a conscious thought that is. I know they're they're going after the Manhattan DA, Alvin Bragg, pretty hard, Jim Jordan and the weaponization uh, committee in, in the House GOP are weaponizing the government against yes, a they are. Manhattan prosecutor. They are threatening rallies and trying to remind people of January 6th and 
remember what Trump can unleash if you go after him. Somebody sent District Attorney Alvin Bragg an envelope full of powder with a note that said that uh, they were going to kill him. And according to the FBI, there were at least a dozen credible death threats out of the several hundred that they've received. So why is this happening to an average DA? Yeah, exactly. Trump Trump points the megaphone at someone and then terrible things just start to happen. But he did it to Jim Comey and he did it to Andrew McCabe and Bruce Orr. I think the thing to remember and part of the reason they get away with this is because Trump and MAGA rat fuck people one at a time. You you find the threat, you find who could hurt us, damage us, and you go after that one person and you squeeze. Mm-hmm. And it is, it's mafia tactics, but of course, these are people who grew up in, in New York with the, mm-hmm. with the five families and later the, the Russian mob moved in. And, and some of those guys owned a lot of Trump properties, which is a whole other conversation. But however, he, <laughs> however, he learned it, whether it was them or his, his mentor, Roy Cohn, who was also a mob attorney, Trump knows about the mafia tactics. And what it really is, is isolating the threat and then removing the threat. Now, that doesn't mean they're going to go off people. At least we're not at that point yet, thankfully. But it is about finding someone's vulnerabilities and weaknesses and where you can cause them problems and force them to back away. Right. So it certainly is a strategy. They've employed it since at least 2017, as soon as he's in the government, in the white house. And well, what's, what's the first thing that happens less than uh, two weeks into the white house into him being in the white house is Mike Flynn gets fired because he lied to the FBI. But on a long enough timeline, they found a way to, quote unquote, absolve Mike Flynn of all of his crimes. Mm -hmm. They can and will rewrite history. And it requires gaslighting and a lot of propaganda, a lot of repetition of that propaganda. But they stay afloat by removing people who could take them down or weaken them or cause them lasting issues. So it's just another in a, in a long line of cases like this, isn't it? Yeah. And so you talk about propaganda and how that's one of the tools that they use to convince people of what they're doing here. They've been priming the base now for a couple of years for this kind of rhetoric. One of the things that was really disturbing to me when it happened in 2020 was Milo Yiannopoulos and Michelle Malkin put together what they called an America first reading list. And they put that out both on their telegrams and on their websites. And they had lots of big, you know, influencers pick it up. Nick Fuentes picked that up. Cassandra Fairbanks picked that up. A lot of the other people on that side of things started pushing it. And the original list had the Turner diaries listed on it. Uh, yeah. And, and the, and the protocols of the elders of Zion. I remember that written by the Okarna, the Russian yeah. secret service before the KGB. You also had the industrial society and its future by Ted Kaczynski, several books by Julius Evola. This is a group of writings that seem designed to radicalize people. And this is what you're getting out of these people after a while, you feed them this kind of diet of literature, and then you've got a base 
that's far more willing to hear some of this anti-government messaging, anti-FBI messaging for what it actually is. And this is what leads you to remember a few years ago in Florida, the gentleman by the name of Cesar Sayoc, who sent pipe bombs to several members of Congress. You have Ricky Schiffer, who shot up an FBI office in Ohio with a nail gun. You have a lot of these people who are huge Trump fans that have gone off and done these kinds of actions over the past several years. And my question is, when you're feeding them this kind of media diet, when you have their leader saying these kinds of things at his rallies, talking about how this is a war, you have that kind of rhetoric. How long is it going to be before we see another McVeigh? Yeah, it is. It is really concerning. It is unknowable, but it's scary. And the people that are most capable and responsible for stopping the next would-be McVeigh are the FBI, Mm -hmm. who are under constant assault by the MAGA Republicans. And I'm sure it does take a toll. And I'm sure it does affect their ability to do their jobs. I'm sure it affects their ability to obtain and cultivate sources because the distrust has grown quite a bit. And we don't know. We don't know. But it is it is all a game of odds and likelihood. And it it does concern me. Yeah, it's very concerning. I hope that nothing even remotely approaching that scale occurs, but... It does seem like what Trump and the people around him are doing is at least making it more likely. And what you're talking about with this reading list and the books that they were putting out there, it, of course, is not anyone official with the Trump campaign. It is not anyone. It never is. Of course, it is. It is rarely anyone that Trump would sit down and have dinner with, although he did do that with (laughs) Nick Fuentes. So uh, whoops, whoops. (laughs) It's again, there's that separation. There's that deniability. It gets into this idea of stoicastic terrorism, which there is now a, a definition of this, which is good. It is a noun, the public demonization of a person or group resulting in the incitement of a violent act which is statistically probable, but whose specifics cannot be predicted. And the example they give is the lone wolf attack was apparently influenced by rhetoric of stoicastic terrorism. So there's still a good amount of debate about whether or not this is real or it exists. And plenty of people, especially on the right, just want to say that, oh, this is a liberal fear mongering, hyperventilating. You just hate us, us good white conservative Christians in America who love our country. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, a lot of those people have learned quite a few heinous tactics from 4chan. And the idea behind this term is that you put out a lot of rhetoric. You tell people who the enemy is. You explain why that person is the enemy. You feed information and maybe eventually someone acts on it. It is not the idea that you go Manchurian candidate on someone, brainwash them, and aha, we have mind-controlled them into carrying out this terrible attack. No, it is that all of this is on a degree of deniability, even with the influencers, because they don't want any responsibility either. No, they don't. It's the idea, if you give someone enough of a push, and more than likely you find someone who has varying degrees of mental illness that is untreated, and not dealt with, 
and sometimes it results in violence. Mm -hmm. And it just seems like the unofficial MAGA influencers out there, whether they're doing this intentionally or not, or aware of it or not, it does seem to fit the description. And if you look at a guy like Ricky Schiffer, who, again, shot up an FBI office in Ohio, the parallels between him and Timothy McVeigh are scary. They're both vets. Timothy McVeigh was a vet of the first Gulf War. Ricky Schiffer was a vet of the second Gulf War. They both came back, didn't really find a place after that. They bounced around a little bit, and then they found a cause. And McVeigh's cause was anti-government, white nationalism. Schiffer's cause was Donald Trump. And he decided that this was the guy. This was what he had been waiting for. And he was literally trying to take on the enemies of what he thought was his president, his leader. And this is really absolutely frightening. Like you said, they're not getting any one individual program to do any of this kind of stuff. It's more of a matter of let's just put this out here. And we know what kind of effect this propaganda has on certain people. We saw it with David DePape. We saw it with the guy who attacked Nancy Pelosi's husband. He mainlines a diet of this kind of propaganda, and the next thing you know, he is trying to break into Nancy Pelosi's house and take her hostage. They are fully aware that this kind of propaganda has this effect on certain people, and they keep doing it. Yeah, and you'll have to ask them why, mm -hmm. but they do. They do. So I also wanted to read from Kathleen Bellew's Twitter thread about the significance of the Waco rally, because I really think she she captured the the moment and how it plays into what we're talking about here. She is a historian and author and a associate professor of history at Northwestern University. She wrote on Twitter, we aren't talking enough about the Trump rally in Waco this weekend. This site is important to the white power movement and other extremist groups because it signifies not only a moment of federal overreach, but a response by extremists, the Oklahoma City bombing. Waco is significant because it is used as the alibi for domestic terrorism. Because the federal government killed Branch Davidians at Waco, the story goes, violence against the federal government and collateral damage against civilians can be justified. Now, Trump isn't the first politician who has used a site of significance for anti-statism to gesture to the anti-statism he will promise if re-elected. Reagan did this by speaking at the site of the murder of civil rights workers in Philadelphia, Mississippi. But Waco is different in a few important ways. One, the Oklahoma City bombing is the largest act of mass casualty violence between World War II and 9-11. Did you know it was a bombing organized by the white power movement? Waco stands for 168 deaths afterwards, including the deaths of 19 children. But we don't even have to look to history to see direct white power content in this rally. And she continues, and no, I'm not only talking about the choir of January 6 prisoners, which, <laughs> side note, was an absurd detail of the rally, but... Yeah. In any case, continuing here, she says, I'm talking about the text of the speech where Trump talks about the importance of a new baby boom immediately after referencing, quote, Western civilization. This isn't even coded enough to decode. This means whiteness. This means protecting the white birth rate. This is the same logic we see in the manifestos of white power, mass shooters in Charleston, El Paso, Christchurch, Philly, Buffalo. 
This is the same fear that the white power slogan 14 words references. This is no longer just a story about elections or about a megalomaniac candidate. This is a movement that has been at war on the nation for decades and is using this candidate for its own purposes. This is not just a story about Trump. Please get these rallies covered by extremism reporters with experience in the field. We need stories on the crowd because we need to be ready to understand the violence that will follow. And I don't think people realize just how obsessed MAGA is with Waco. So let's read some choice tweets on this. I'm going to start here with Jack Posobiec, who we covered in great detail in episode 38 of this show. Okay, this is from one day ago. Waco is a great place to tell people to stop trusting the government. Going back uh, to 2020, February 28th, 2020, which I'm sure he had some Waco tweets before this that he has since deleted. But in any case, in this one, he said, 27 years ago today, Janet Reno and the ATF FBI began the Waco siege. Bill Clinton had just taken office. It ended in the deaths of 82 American citizens, including 20 children and two pregnant women. Ooh. May 1st, 2020, the normies are finally finding out about Waco. May 1st, also 2020, Netflix is teaching more people about Waco and Ruby Ridge than schools ever will. And one more from May 1st, 2020, people say, how can Chinese people not know about Tiananmen Square, but there are Americans who don't even know about Waco and Ruby Ridge, the power of a mission. Yeah, and here's from April 20th, 2020. He's quote tweeting Cernovich. Let me read what Cernovich said. Did you know the Pulse nightclub shooter was investigated for terrorism after co-workers called the FBI? The FBI declined to prosecute Omar Mateen because Mateen's father was an FBI informant. The FBI director kept this covered up for years. His name, James Comey. And Poso's quote tweet is, wait till they find out about Waco. And it, it's just a couple tweets, but it's, it's constant. It's constant. Mm -hmm. The FBI fucked up this thing, and then they fucked up this other thing, and they're the enemy. January 11th, 2020. Koresh used to jog all over Waco regularly. The feds could have brought him in at any time without causing what they did, but they wanted big PR as a, quote, response, unquote, to Ruby Ridge. Great work, FBI. Yeah. This is just what the guy does. He's putting it out there and putting it out there along with the rest of them. Yeah. And he might be the most egregious and just constantly beating this drum, at least on Twitter. But it is an obsession. It's it's come up a lot with Steve Bannon and his show. I've definitely seen and heard Charlie Kirk bringing it up quite a bit on his show. They have incorporated Waco into their anti-deep state rhetoric, which, of course, really got going in 2017 because the FBI was looking at Trump and his contacts and any sort of coordination with Russia. I'm not going to get into quote unquote Russian collusion because they have so captured the the narrative about the Trump campaign and the various overtures that they made to Putin or his advisors or the various ways that they just sort of regurgitated Kremlin talking points that it's absurd, but Every one of those investigations got 
yeah. it they just got kneecapped, really. Mm-hmm. And it's using the same tactics they're doing now. And every every attack, every investigation, everything is going to be the deep state and George Soros and Joe Biden and anyone involved in the government that they can they can point a finger at and say, aha. Go get him. Here's Matt Gates talking about wanting to dismantle the ATF. The ATF cannot be trusted to protect our rights to keep and bear arms. There is no timeline in which the ATF, under any administration, would become an ally. It needs to go. We need to abolish the ATF before they abolish our Second Amendment rights. Let's get rid of this unlawful agency once and for all. Matt Gates was another one of the featured speakers at Trump's rally, and he is no fan, evidently, of the ATF. Uh, March 23rd, the ATF is a corrupt bureaucracy that is violating the law, exceeding its authority, and collecting records that they have no business collecting. I intend to use the new rules secured in the House of Representatives to offer amendments to the Appropriations Act to zero out the salaries of ATF bureaucrats for breaking the law and abusing the liberties of our fellow Americans. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Just doing the Lord's work over there. Mm-hmm. And you just happened to say that at the rally in Waco. Cool. Cool. Uh-huh. Yeah. Total coincidence, guys. It's it's just a central location. Huh. <laughs> yep. That's that's all it is. It always is. So this is kind of perfect for the narrative that Trump and the rest of MAGA are trying to sell. The ATF botched the raid on the Branch Davidian compound before the FBI botched the siege. So now you've got Trump with this rally in Waco and Matt Gates, who's been telling people he wants to abolish the ATF as one of the featured speakers at Trump's rally. A rally where Trump is attacking the, quote, deep state, while also telling his audience that the sex trafficking investigation into Matt Gates was all made up. They were persecuting him. He's innocent. Meanwhile, Trump is asking for your vote to dismantle the deep state who are only trying to indict Trump in his telling because he's doing well in the polls. Live from Waco, one of the gravest incidents of FBI incompetence in that organization's history. Right. And let's be absolutely clear here. The ATF and the FBI botched Waco. There's no getting around that. It was definitely a bad situation. And maybe, maybe the ultimate death toll of 82 Branch Davidians after the 51-day siege, or at least something approaching that number, was inevitable. But we can't know that. We we do know the FBI could have handled many of the steps in the process differently, and frankly, in ways which would have increased the likelihood of less casualties after 51 days. And we know from subsequent reporting and changes in ATF and FBI training and procedures that they recognized these shortcomings and failures in 1993. As Mark Wilson wrote for the Austin American Statesman of the fallout from the Waco siege, quote, the biggest problem we had was internal, unquote, said Byron Sage, the lead FBI negotiator during the siege. We brought it on ourselves. We created a crisis within a crisis. Sage, who lives in the Austin area, said there was a significant lack of communication between negotiators and tactical officers, including the hostage rescue team and other SWAT teams that were brought in to help put an end to the standoff. Quote, probably one of the biggest lessons learned from this is that the tactical teams and the negotiators absolutely need to be on the same sheet of music. What we're saying, they've got to be mirroring with their actions. And what they're doing with their actions, we need to be aware of that so we can mitigate any kind of concern that the opposing side might have with it. We didn't have that, and that was a major breakdown, he said. 
The show of force from the tactical side of the operation, too, might have served to strengthen the resolve of the Branch Davidians to hold their ground. Sage said a high-profile police tactical presence tends to drive people together instead of apart. The article continues, After Waco, the ATF invested in tactical equipment and improved weapon systems, along with training on using tear gas and automatic weapons. The agency also standardized training across the board. Quote, we did everything the same, unquote. ATF agent Blake Bottler said, Agents began training with the Los Angeles Police Department through the National Tactical Officers Association, receiving specialized instruction in hostage rescue, warrant execution, breaching, tear gas, and other capabilities the agency didn't have in Waco. Incident commanders also received a higher level of training and scrutiny. Quote, we run scenarios and put these incident commanders through scenarios where they see and make decisions in a training environment that challenge them to make the right decisions, Bottler said. The FBI, a vastly larger organization, also had to make changes after Waco to improve communication and cohesion among the different elements involved in critical incidents like the Waco siege. The Bureau created the Critical Incident Response Group. Notably, the agency's tactical and negotiating teams now train together. The group houses five sections, the FBI's aviation program, crisis management and command posts, bomb technicians, and the hazardous devices school, all of the behavioral analysis units, and the tactical section, composed of the hostage rescue team, negotiators, the tactical helicopter unit, and support. The negotiators are occupying, living in, training with, exercising with, and operating with the tactical operators every day. We're housed in the same place, said David Sunberg, chief of the tactical section and commander of the hostage rescue team. So, not just at a critical incident, but at all times before, we are working together. Individual tactical operators are very familiar with individual negotiators, and then on up through the management and command structure of the critical incident response group. The various agents work together to understand one another's roles and capabilities so they can function alongside each other during complex and time-sensitive responses to critical incidents, Sunberg said. And we talked about this in episode 42 with David Neward, who covered the Freeman standoff in Jordan, Montana, which was the first time that the FBI put their new training and tactics to the test, and that outcome was clearly better. Quote, as the events from Waco and Ruby Ridge were fresh in recent memory, the FBI wanted to avoid another armed conflict, if at all possible, CNN reported at the time. Quote, the FBI has gone to great pains to ensure that there is no armed confrontation, no siege, no armed perimeter, and no use of military assault type tactics or equipment, quote, then Attorney General Janet Reno said in a statement. Quote, the FBI is trying to negotiate a peaceful solution. After months of waiting and negotiations, the FBI's decision to play it safe paid off when the remaining freemen surrendered peacefully the following June. Since then, the federal government's response to armed conflicts like the recent occupation of the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge headquarters in Oregon has been to be patient and cautious, even if it draws criticism for acting too slowly, Alex Altman wrote for Time magazine in January. This is from Smithsonian Magazine. I think these reforms and these changes also kind of get to the heart of what the difference is between MAGA Republicans and the rest of the country right now, including the two of us, because they want to burn it all down mm -hmm. and we want to reform it and make it better. And I think it's instructive to watch how their messaging revolves around the worst times in American history. And for a bunch of people who supposedly want to make America great again, all of their reference points are times that America wasn't great. 
we see this time and time again from these people, and it really makes you wonder. Yeah, and I've seen them attacking Janet Reno, and she's she's quoted in that article that you cited with Smithsonian talking about how they tried to do better. But is she still mm-hmm. a target of MAGA, of their animus and spite? Of course she is, because they don't care about what you do to make it better. They just want to remind everyone of the worst thing you can possibly be connected to at any point in your life or career or the life or career of the agency or group that you work for and repeat, 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 repeat. That is the enemy. That is the problem. And it doesn't matter what you do afterwards. And they're telling. It's it's like when they screenshot your bad take or your bad tweet or the, the one thing you get wrong. And of course, they ignore the 50 good things you did because they want to shame you and embarrass you and remind everyone of how incompetent you are and why you should be considered the enemy. Right. Now, they don't take any personal responsibility for their own failings, but it is a tactic. It's why propaganda works if you repeat, 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 because people do internalize it. We talked recently about Microchip, the alt-right troll, who's the government's confidential witness in the trial against uh, Ricky Vaughn, a.k.a., well, his real name is Douglas Mackey. And it's that idea of they don't care what the truth is, and they will use humor or anything at their disposal to make sure that their ideas get in their audience's mind and stay there. And so Trump and Matt Gates and MTG and everyone else at this event just say, oh, I just, the climate in Waco is wonderful. <laughs> but 2024, it's the retribution tour. Trump talked about it. He, of course, the the people who stormed the Capitol on January 6th are political prisoners held in Merrick Garland's gulag yep. somewhere. Yep. We, we don't we don't know where he keeps that gulag of his, but by golly, it exists. <laughs> Never mind the fact that various congressmen from the other side have been in to see them and said that these people are essentially isolated and they're getting great food and great recreation and privileges and able to do all of these other things. It doesn't matter. They have a narrative and they're sticking to it. Yeah. Yeah, so it's it's going to work for them until it doesn't. But Trump has got one last go at this, and he asked people in Waco to put him in office so that he can dismantle the deep state. The thing that gets me, and I, and I know why they say it and why it works, but it's this idea that their authoritarian movement, their anti-democratic movement, is the one that's going to ensure all of our freedom. And it's every dictator, it's every authoritarian leader, strong man. I am the way and just let me have all the power and then you'll be free. And it can be worded in a way that enough people believe it. But it is, let's just repeat for everyone, that's not true. That's not how it works. And it might be great for you if you're on their team and you agree with everything they say and do everything they want. But watch what happens when you even take the tiniest little step out of line yeah indeed thanks for listening to the did nothing wrong podcast if you want to hear more you can go to did nothing wrong you can also follow us on twitter at james the word four and the letter m all one word and grizza bjj g-r-z-a bjj as well as dnw pod thanks again for tuning in and remember Everyone mentioned did nothing wrong.